This is the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. In this episode, we'll be exploring Burgess's relationship with poetry to mark the release of Anthony Burgess, Collected Poems, edited by Jonathan Mann and published by Carcanet. When Anthony Burgess was a schoolboy, his love of literature was total. Novels, drama, and poetry all provided key influences in his later work. But before he wrote any of his novels, he experimented in reading and writing poetry. Burgess's earliest published work was poetry, and his primary ambition before he wrote any of his novels was to write a long stage play in verse. When he did begin writing novels, it was the poetry he first read as a schoolboy that provided a foundational inspiration. Poets such as Ezra Pound, T.S. Eliot and Gerard Manley Hopkins influenced the young Burgess the most, and throughout his career as a novelist he returned to their work again and again. Burgess's first published poem appeared in the Zaverian College magazine Electron in 1935, and it's a naked homage to Hopkins, who Burgess had first read five years before, when he was 13. The poem is titled that the earth rose out of a vast basin of electric sea, which alone echoes Hopkins's own titles, such as that nature is a Hereticlean fire and of the comfort of the resurrection. The actual content of the poem recalls Hopkins further. Rolled, 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 and all being fills in it, where fireflies sparks gay with gold. Wash the lot, the tide swills, spills in it. Tying all, oh, with what strings it binds, binds earth and air to all, its shoes and nose, meets all, leaps and sings its way through the spray of it, the misty call. Womb of all, tomb of all, the mass where mighty fingers beat now, knead and mould with a curling of tongues, a laugh and a mocking to pass, it ceases note, rolling in wash and glint of gold. This poem shows Burgess's attempt at mimicking Hopkins's use of language and rhythm. The use of alliteration of fireflies, gay with gold and glint of gold recalls the Hopkins of poems such as Pied Beauty. And Burgess can be seen experimenting with sprung rhythm. This is the idea that stressed syllables can be used sequentially rather than alternating with unstressed syllables, as in more traditional poetry. In sprung rhythm, it is usual for there to be one to four stressed syllables in each poetic foot, where more traditional English poetry maintains a constant two syllables in each foot. Comparing Hopkins to the strict iambic pentameter of Shakespeare, Burgess describes sprung rhythm as more akin to music than poetry. He explains this in This Man of Music, his biographical book examining the interrelation between music and literature. With sprung rhythm, you have as few or as many syllables as you wish, so long as you cling to a pattern of stresses. A Hopkins sonnet, however horrid or slowed, its syllabic content always has the same number of stresses to the line, usually five, but sometimes six and once even eight. 
those lines behave precisely as music behaves. While Hopkins strictly maintains a consistency in his use of sprung syllables in his poems, Burgess's schoolboy poem in The Electron has a looser interpretation of this device. Nevertheless, Hopkins's poetry influenced Burgess throughout his career, including in the invention of Nadsat, the language of a clockwork orange. Whether directly quoting Hopkins or using turns of phrase that are inspired by his poetry, take this example from early in the novel. We were all failing, that bit shagged and fagged and fashed, it being an evening of some great expenditure. Compare this to this line from Hopkins's poem, The Leaden Echo and the Golden Echo. Oh then, weary then, why should we tread? Oh, why are we so haggard at the heart, so care-coiled, care-killed, so fagged, so fashed, so cogged, so cumbered, when the thing we freely forfeit is kept with a fonder care? This is just one example of Hopkins's influence on A Clockwork Orange which also includes words from Hopkins's poetry such as fire gold and lit music, and an overt parody of the poet's style in the line Dear dead idlewilds rot not in variform guises. All of this, plus allusions to W.B. Yeats, T.S. Eliot and Arthur Rambo, makes a strong case for it to be read as a novel that builds on the poetic voices of Burgess's influences up to that point in his career. It is Hopkins's use of language that first intoxicated Burgess, and he claims he first read the poet's work on a ferry back from France in 1930, on the same school trip that he first discovered James Joyce's Ulysses. Of this encounter, in an article commemorating the centenary of Hopkins's death, Burgess claims that he still cannot read Hopkins without the sensation of daring proper, at that time, to read Ulysses. That these two writers are entwined in Burgess's memory in such a way shows the foundational influence of Hopkins on his work. This can be seen to its fullest extent in Nothing Like the Sun, Burgess's novel about the love life of Shakespeare. It was his intent to write it in a florid Elizabethan style, yet it's evident that the ghosts of Hopkins and Joyce hover over the writing. This passage about the young Shakespeare from early in the novel shows this. Drink, then. Down it among the tip-brained mullygullyards of country copulatives, of a beastly sort, all their brown pickers a clutch of their spillywilly popkins, filthy from handling of spade and harrow, cheesy from udder new milked, slash mouths agape at some merry tale from that rogue with rat skins about his middle, coney skin cap on sconce, Robustuous rothers in rural river rhapsodic. Swill thou then among them, O London will to be, gentlemen in waiting. Scrike thine ale's laughter with Hodge and Tom and Dick and Black Jack the Outlander from Long Compton. And here was one 
that was back to his heath after a year away, and Miles Gloriosus. This passage is a rich telling of young Shakespeare's lust for a life of excitement in London, stuck in his home in Stratford. But what's noticeable is the language Burgess uses, which recalls the poetry of Hopkins by using devices such as alliteration, hyphenation and assonance. The rhythmic quality of the language can also be seen to be inspired by Hopkins. Hopkins's work provides a more overt influence on Burgess's Enderby novels. In The Clockwork Testament, the third in the sequence of novels, Enderby is hired by a Hollywood studio to adapt Hopkins's epic poem The Wreck of the Deutschland. Hopkins's poem tells the story of the wreck of a ship in the Kentish Knock, which killed five German Franciscan nuns. He begins the script as a tribute to Hopkins, but the finished film is a scandalous and exploitative product of the studio system. Hopkins, who had been given quite arbitrarily the new name of Tom, eventually Father Tom, was Irish, and the tall nun was played by a Swede, though that was really all right. These two had a great pink sexual encounter, but before either of them took vows. So that, and to be supposed, was all right too. There were some over-explicit scenes of the nuns being violated by teenage stormtroopers. The tall nun Gertrude herself tore off her Franciscan habit to make bandages during the storm scenes, so that her end, in a posture of crucifixion on the Kentish knock, was as near nude as that of her master. There was also an ambiguous moment when Storm's bugling, though somewhat subdued, death's fame in the background, she cried, orgasmatically, Oh Christ, Christ, come quickly! Hopkins's own words, so one could hardly complain. Despite this direct reference to Hopkins's poetry in the Clockwork Testament, Enderby's own poetry has different influences. Take the poem Garrison Town Evening, a poem that appeared in Inside Mr Enderby, here read by Burgess in a recording from 1979. Nymphs and satyrs come away. Faunus, laughing from the hill, rips the blanket of the day from the paunched and dirty will. Each projector rears its snout, truffling the blackened scene till the villa's lights gush out Vorstellungen on a screen. Doxes matte to silver white. All their trappings of the sport, lax and scattered, in this light, merge and lock to smooth and taut. See the rockets shoot afar. Ah, the screen was tautest then. Tragic the parabola as the sticks reeled down. This poem is full of intertextual references to other works. The opening line is almost identical to Henry Purcell's song Nymphs and Shepherds Come Away, which was made famous in 1929 when a choir of 250 schoolchildren from 52 Manchester schools sang it with the Halle Orchestra. There are also non-poetic references to Schopenhauer in the Villa and Vorstellung, and the parabola is an image from the German historian Oswald Spengler's Decline of the West. This intertextual technique was surely learned from another of Burgess's great poetic influences, T.S. Eliot. 
Burgess first encountered Eliot's poetry around the same time he read Hopkins. He remembers buying Eliot's collected poems on a trip to London in 1936. I took the train from Euston and read through T.S. Eliot's collected poems 1909 to 1935, which I'd bought in Charing Cross Road. The entire volume failed to last the journey. Eliot had not written much from 1909 on. I took music manuscript paper from my suitcase and sketched settings of the songs in Sweeney Agonistes, and I recorded these settings in Milan in 1981. The songs from Sweeney Agonistes were actually recorded by Burgess in 1979 for the project they wrote in English, an attempt to write a textbook that covered all of the English-speaking canon. Here is Burgess's setting of Under the Bamboo Tree from Sweeney Agonistes, played by Burgess himself. This first reading of Eliot's poetry sets the standard for Burgess's engagement with it throughout his career. The copy of Collected Poems remains in the book collection at the Burgess Foundation and contains some interesting annotations. It appears that Eliot's most famous poem, The Wasteland, has been marked up to be read as a dramatic performance, possibly during Burgess's studies at Manchester University or during his involvement in amateur dramatics while he lived in Bamba Bridge and Banbury during the 1940s and 1950s. Later, in 1978, he set the whole of the wasteland to music as a melodrama for narrator, soprano, flute, oboe, cello and piano. This musical interaction with Eliot's work is only a small part of the influence it had on Burgess's creative output. His novels are full of references and allusions to Eliot, as he describes in his autobiography. It was, I discovered myself when I first began to write seriously, hard to get the Eliotian voices out of my ears and my prose. It was so delightful to conjoin mock pomposity with deliberate vulgarity. 
to throw in recondite literary allusions for ironic effects, to make statements conveying an authority somehow both professorial and parsonic, and yet, at the same time, tinged with self-mockery. References to the wasteland appear in some of the first fiction Burgess ever wrote. The novel, A Vision of Battlements, written shortly after the war but not published until 1965, contains quotations from the poem. Roosters are seen cockerecoing, the thunder speaks, and there is an allusion to Madame Sesostris, the tarot reader in the poem. Burgess claimed he learned the wasteland by heart when he was still at school, and these references show that Eliot's language and some of the thematic ideas of the poem were part of Burgess's formative introduction to literature as a whole. In fact, he suggests that, for his generation, Eliot is part of the furniture of the mind and comes up at all times, often irrelevantly. But I don't think I'd ever structure a book or sequence of books on the poem. It's the texture, the rhythm that counts. Burgess's relationship with Eliot's work is key to understanding much of the imagery and linguistic usage, but modernist poetry as a whole helped forge his imagination. Burgess's comments about Ezra Pound reflect what he said about Eliot, that his cantos were immensely important, supreme examples of the development of an idiolect, a personal language, which became the language of an entire generation. Yet simply looking at Burgess's influences does not adequately help in the understanding of Burgess's own poetry. For Burgess, fiction writing, music and poetry were all interwoven in his imagination and the three art forms operated in a symbiotic relationship in his work. Burgess's novels are full of poetry, and not just the linguistic and thematic influence of his favourite poets. He explains his view of the novel form in an interview with Paris Review. The novel is the only big literary form we have left. It is capable of enclosing the other, lesser literary forms, from the play to the lyric poem. Poets are doing well enough, especially in America, but they can't achieve the architectonic skill which once lay behind the epic for which the novel is now substitute. The short, sharp burst in music as well as poetry is not enough. The novel has the monopoly of form today. Many of Burgess's novels have poetry in them. From the comedic Enderby novels, through the Rome-set novels Beards, Roman Women and Abba Abba, the narrative of which is built on translations of the sonnets by the Roman poet Belly, to the experimental novels such as M.F. and Napoleon Symphony. The latter of these novels is Burgess's most sustained attempt at trying to blend the art forms of fiction, music and poetry in the novel form. It's structured to mirror Beethoven's Eroica, uses modernist poetic techniques in the telling of Napoleon's life, and ends with a pseudo-epic poem that not only continues the themes of the narrative, but comments on the form in which the novel is written in a self-deprecating manner. Take then or leave this lump of minor art, a novel on Napoleon Bonaparte. In a Pickwickian sense, I ought to add... Post-Tolstoy novelists are reckoned mad. Presumptuous, temerarious are all three. 
to write about the Corsican since he is brilliantly portrayed in Voina Rimir. After that vodka, who wants British beer? Even Burgess's more standalone works of poetry cannot be seen as singular works of art. Moses, his book-length poem dealing with the life of the biblical character, provided the blueprint for Burgess's work on the television film Moses the Lawgiver and is intended to mimic the verse form of the original Bible story. The libretto for Blooms of Dublin, based on Joyce's Ulysses, requires Burgess's music to make it live. And Byrne, Burgess's last piece of writing, is a novel in verse form. Poetry for Burgess was inseparable from literature as a whole. In his mind, it was part of a conversation that did not seek to put barriers between the different forms. He began publishing as a poet, sustained an interest in verse forms by writing songs and poems throughout his career, and ended his publishing life with a novel written in rhyming verse. The publication of his collected poems by Carcanet, edited by Jonathan Mann, includes a hundred pages of previously unpublished works and allows us not only to re-evaluate Burgess's poems, but as the poems are separated from their source novels and other connections, it promises to encourage approaches to Burgess's fiction from different angles, highlighting previously hidden influences and illuminating Burgess's multifaceted love of literature. You have been listening to the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. Collected poems by Anthony Burgess, edited by Jonathan Mann and published by Carcanet, is available to order now from your favourite place to buy books. This podcast was written and narrated by Graham Foster. Readings were by Paul Barnhill. Music was by Anthony Burgess. For more information about Anthony Burgess and the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org.